Let's sit. Let's learn. Let's evolve. Let's talk. No more whispering in our minds. Today is Let's Talk Arts with your host, Rachel Sara. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Let's Talk the Arts. Today I am joined with Kondamuka artist Megan Cope and we're going to talk about all things politics and platforms and take a deep dive into her work, Bated Breath. Megan has a wide range of different works that are equally challenging and inspiring and I can't wait to get into what it means to be an individual artist and also a member of Proper Now. Megan, thank you for joining me today. I am low-key, well, not so low-key, I've made it very obvious, a huge fangirl of your work and what you stand for, so I'm really excited to jump into today's chat. But to begin, can you tell us who your mob is, where you come from? Thanks, Rachel. Thanks for having me. Um, My family are the Islands and Martins um, uh, from Gumpi in Dunwich, um, North Strabroke Island, Manjeraba, Kwanamooka country. Beautiful country, beautiful country down that way. And you had a croc sighting there recently, (laughs) which is out of the blue. Yeah, I know. I think some people are still debating whether it was a croc or whether it was a a dugong <laughs> or a log. Uh, yeah, but um, no recent updates yeah. on, 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 on where that croc is. So. Okay, well, you heard it here first. There's no new sightings. <laughs> <laughs> so for listeners who may not be familiar with your work or your practice, can you tell us a little bit about what it is that you do and I guess what inspires you? Yeah, sure. So I'm a visual artist. You know, I identify as a Kwanamuka woman. Uh, visual artist, I work across sculpture, painting, um, video, uh, really any any kind of material that that um, best translate the issues that I want to talk to in my practice. Mm-hmm. Um, I graduated in 2006, so it feels like a long time ago. I guess, you know, the past 16 years I've just continued to to make work. Um, I'm also a member of the uh, art collective Proper Now. Mm-hmm. So I joined Proper Now in 2011 and that's um, certainly shaped uh, my, um, you know, experience as an artist and um, connections into community and mm-hmm. in the art space. Yeah. Yeah. I think Proper Now is so, Proper Now, sorry, is so deadly because a lot of people think that to be an artist, you have to be based in Sydney or Melbourne or in these other really high profile locations. But to have an artist collective like Proper Now based here in Mianjin is so powerful. Can you tell me a little bit about what it means to be part of something like that? Oh, well, firstly, it's a great honour to join an establishment like Proper Now that um, are so committed to uh, self-determination, critical thinking, excellence in Aboriginal art making. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, I did leave and I went to Melbourne for those reasons. I, you know, there's a part of me that was so comfortable here um, because of the space and that, that Proper Now and other artists made here. So, yeah, I did go to Melbourne for a while, but I've come back home and I'm so glad <laughs> to be back. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. So with Proper Now and I guess your personal work, are there spaces where one exists outside of the other or are they kind of embodied into the same sort of Megan Cope? Yeah, it's a really good question. 
Certainly when I joined in 2011, I lacked confidence um, in, you know, finding the the strength to speak on really difficult things, mm-hmm. um, you know, and to be overtly political, mm-hmm. um, you know, because this is a bit of a, it's interesting, right, because what we're talking about is like being in community mm-hmm. and being a part of something. So, you know, when it comes to my family, when I make work that represents them, you know, not everyone um, is confident to speak out like some of the members of Proper Now. So mm. there is a bit of a distinction in in the work. But I guess over the past 10 years, they've kind of, as, as my work's developed, I've found more intersections mm. um, and ways to kind of speak fiercely about things that connect to my country and then, you know, connect more broadly to the outside world. Um, You know, Proper Now responds to national issues, you know. We're individuals that also draw from our own families and location. But, um, you know, overall it's, it's, it's always targeting particular policies that are out topics of discussion on the national agenda and, um, you know, putting that on the walls of the gallery for us to speak, I guess, in another space, you know, outside of the media but in a public space perhaps, yeah. Yeah. So when you say lacking confidence to be overtly political, is that something that comes from you internally or is that external, I guess, environments that are forcing that onto you? Um. Oh look, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a mix, you know. Like um, my family's very humble, um, you know that I don't come from a a, a family of activists, mm-hmm. for instance. Um, my family, the role that my members of my family have had in community is very much a working class um, position of service. You know, in saying that, my great granny and granddad were very uh, active and um, were a very strong force um, back in those days. But I guess, you know, my immediate inheritance and life experience growing up Aboriginal was one that was at all times proud of who we are and never in denial of that. But um, yeah, not necessarily organising marches and stuff like yeah. that. So, yeah, I, um, you know, that's protocol is to be respectful, to yeah. know your position, to state your position, to be honest about it. Um, and and so, yeah, when I went to art school here and was being introduced to, to all these mind-blowing histories and understanding what colonialism is you know it was it was a very big time of awakening and it was overwhelming at times so you know I think that it it's a process um, of defining yourself and um, finding your language and knowing how to speak with others and by being yourself as well you know bringing bringing that into the fold yeah so yeah back I mean, I went to 
Kaya when I was 19. Mm. So I was really young. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of those incredible programs that is really birthing a lot of artists that are really doing a lot of God's work for lack of a better term, isn't it? To kind of just uncouple, I guess, our, what we perceive as known versus what is the actual reality of certain mm. things. Yeah. I want to go back a few steps. You spoke about the intersectionality of certain parts of your process. I wonder when you are becoming an artist and you're learning how to be overtly political or learning how to, I guess, massage your voice into your art, does your gender play into that? Um, is it something that has been at the forefront being a, a black woman versus kind of having the confidence of, you know, that very male-dominated spaces sometimes? Oh, look, it's a really good question. I mean, not 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 consciously, but what I have found is that, you know, I was raised by my Aboriginal father. Mm. Um, he was a single dad. And so he didn't kind of prescribe any kind of gender normativity on me. Um, I was always like fixing the car with him. Like so so navigating through the world, I didn't really see myself as man or woman yeah. in a way. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's It's sort of something that I guess in the last 10 years I've learning about the institution, learning about power structures, learning about all this stuff that that I've, you know, I'm, I do articulate mm. that I am an Aboriginal woman, yeah. you know. Um, but that doesn't, um, that's not for the purposes of any kind of... Resistance. Uh, or to position myself in any lower yeah. space. It's to... to um, to kind of align this action, this affirmative action with being a black woman. Yeah. And that's, you know, to be in a positive way. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of your themes are kind of directly impacting yourself but also community, um, the themes in your work. Can you talk to us a bit about some of those key themes that you do focus on? Yeah, so a lot of my practice is uh, mapping practices um and you know I wanted to I wanted to look at mapping um because you know land rights and land back is one of the most important things to Mm. our people it's one of the things that we have not achieved Mm -hmm. properly native title is not those cracks land rights Yeah. yeah so you know, just thinking back to when I was teaching um, at, at QCA a long, long time ago, um, back then, you know, I would say to the students that were mainstream students as well as Indigenous students, hands up, who believes that over there, and I would point to the city because it's positioned in South Bank, hands up, who believes that's Aboriginal land? No hands would go up and... Then we would talk about, you know, what do you do on the weekends? Do you go to Corumban to go surfing? You swim in Talabudgera, you know. And these kids ha- hadn't really realised that, A, they were speaking Aboriginal language words mm. for places and, and, and B, that um, a city could be Aboriginal as mm. well or, you know, so... 
so yeah, this this is these sorts of um, conversations and um, realization that that the world still didn't um, consciously see the land like we do mm. um, f- felt like the right thing to kind of focus on and address in my work and and center my work on. So yeah, I, I work with um, military maps, parish maps, all of those old early maps. Um, Very colonial ways of thinking. Yeah, yeah. Well, they're also, I mean, there was maps before that, but when we look at those specific types of maps, we've got the parish maps which were defined and drawn by the the church. Um, And so that locates our people in a landscape at a particular time. And then, you know, I work with the military maps because... Um, that general survey was done between 1910 and 1940. Mm-hmm. And uh, when you look at both of those, you know, there are, it's an interesting kind of study um, because you see the immense change and you see the colonial grip on the landscape. So, yeah, I wanted to use those. They're actually also beautiful documents. Yeah. Um, I deliberately didn't want to paint country... Um, from my from my um, imagination, mm-hmm. uh, because I felt like it would run the risk of being romanticised mm-hmm. um, or co-opted into something else, and so I wanted to use colonial tools of dispossession and and f- and actual government documents to work over to kind of um, bring home the reality and truth because a nice painting of country usually makes white people feel good about colonisation and I don't want that to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Now, one of the main reasons aside from you being such a talented artist that I wanted to get you on was to talk specifically about your work, Bated Breath. I was lucky enough to see it at the UQ Art Museum as part of the Proper Now show And it's one that stood out for me because I think it was something that I could take a moment and reflect on my own position. And and it does touch on that idea of social media and whether it's a harmful space. So can you talk to me a bit more about that specific body of work? Sure. That bated breath, I guess, you know, it's a, it's a, I'll describe what it looks like. It's a, um, like a big chandelier kind of sculptural form floating in space comprised of 1,300 hand-carved ceramic bait fish that I've kind of cut with a knife so there are facets on it, uh, on the fish, and I painted it with car paint, like chrome car paint, so it's real shiny. Um, and these fish are kind of suspended in a in a spiral motion, like sort of descending downwards and they're descending towards a mirror that's laid on the floor that has a target sign on it. And I guess, you know, I wanted to encapsulate or make a portrait of what I see so many social debates kind of turn into and which is this mass kind of downward spiral And, you know, people who dominate are often not thinking about community. They're not thinking about 
their ancestors' legacy. They're not thinking about it um, in a in a holistic and community framework. Often it's individuals wanting to be dominant, be controlling, even if it is with the best intentions. Um, you know, I, I just find that, you know, these very, very big social discussions that should be discussed over weeks and not in 30 seconds on the internet kind mm. of um, have been leading to a lot of, um, you know, yeah, lateral violence, um, a lot of fracturing of relationships mm. um, and, you know, I've, I find that very counterproductive to the social organising and the achievements that our elders have been able to achieve over the last 60 years yeah. in this space. So, yeah, I'm quite troubled by by it. Like I, I understand that it's it's very, um, it's, it's amazing to also have agency and access to ma- a lot of people, mm. but I'm just wary of, who owns it, for instance? Mm-hmm. We're talking about American tech billionaires who are white males. Um, I'm concerned about, yeah, who who controls it, um, who gets who gets included and who's not included. And yeah. you know, um, the 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 word "bated breath" refers to the state in which you almost stop breathing as a result of strong emotion such as terror or awe or fear or anxiety. So that's actually what the word bated breath yeah. um, comes from. And, yeah, so it's a, you know, Shakespeare first mentioned it in his piece, The Merchant of Venice. So I wanted to kind of connect to these feelings that are part of our community across the world, you know. It's not just Indigenous people but, yeah, uh, in Australia, yeah. Yeah. And so has that been sort of an opinion you've always held of social media or do you think it's come more to the forefront after the pandemic, during the pandemic when we were seeing a lot more people spending time online and also at the same time seeing that rise of the Black Lives Matter movement overseas? Well, um, you know, I grew up in the 90s, so after school we would meet on the church stairs or in a park. We'd talk about that at school and then we would um, meet and hang out after. Mm. So we didn't need phones or text messages. So I'm kind of like from that time. Yeah. Um, I'm engaged, I have a smartphone, I'm on social media platforms, but I don't um, rely on them for my social connections, yeah. I guess, and organising. And your so, work certainly doesn't depend on social media either. It has its own kind of environment that it exists within. Yeah, so, I mean, I feel like Black Lives Matter has has didn't sort of, you know, end after it started. Um, 
you know, in, in, in the 30s, 1930s with the activists and the black civil rights movement and it didn't start on social media. Yeah. Um, and so we have to be honest about that and, and make those um, um, assertions, I guess, I know that I know that um, I know that we have access to what's going on now, police brutality, All yeah, things, and yeah. we have that because people are able to stream their reality. I mean, you know, I'm looking at Palestine every single day as well. Like, I can't remember what your question was specifically, but but I think you know, simultaneously this access also is debilitating yeah. and overwhelming and and I think that the tech giants know this. Yes. So that's that's the thing that I want to kind of talk about is like how do we, what is agency in this space? Mm. What are our limitations? What are the protocols? How do we actually form a structure and a forum where we come out on top, that we're not the ones coming out with mental health issues and feeling further dislocated and isolated from our communities and the issues, right? So those are the sort of things that I'm interested in in, um, talking about with that particular work, yeah. And I think what I was drawn to about that work was, and we spoke about it off air as well, is that you're this embodiment of equal parts inspiring and equal parts challenging and challenging in a good way. You know, as a, a young Aboriginal artist and particularly female artist growing up in Mianjin and and finding my place, finding, I guess, where I belong. And from a generation where social media did exist, I'll be the first to say that I have really been absorbed into that metric of what social media is and that I guess that whole of social media and so I think for me it's so easy to get caught up into what you're talking about that algorithm of who's heard and who's not and is this actually what I'm thinking is this something that someone else has influenced because it's what I'm consuming and I think what I love most about your work Baited Breath is it was engaging enough to be challenging to reflect on our role of social media and our position on social media, which I think is so powerful for a lot of people because we're also talking about on social media and TikTok in particular for musicians, like there's this idea that agencies want something that will trend, that will be mass consumed. But your work is such a departure from that mass consumption online. And I'm assuming that's something that you've actively chosen to do. It's like talking to specific people is that would you agree or definitely um yeah and I think you've articulated um one of the core issues is 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 time Mm. you know like how much how much time we spend on these very important social issues um you know, like for me, it's so important. Like when we when we talk to these things, we have to transcend. You know, the time spans of a of a of a trend on social media, and um, you know, a trend in the marketplace. You know, these things are so much greater than that. Mm. We know that because we're here in the reflection of our ancestors who were here before then. And, you know, 
hopefully when we take that power back, we can then instill it into future generations so that they will be, that these core values and these and this sense of empowerment transcends into the future as well. Mm. And so you've spoken about briefly and just before that, you know, social media is a direct reflectant of our own mental health and our own mental health and its state. But you also mentioned you were a teacher at QCA. So I want to know, and we're talking a lot about, you know, youth crime and, and different things, but specifically I want to touch on why do you think art is such an important vessel to, I guess, find strength in our identity and to really embody who we want to be? Well, I feel that way because um, when I was growing up, uh, no one had high hopes for me. I come from a very rough working class, um, you know, even, you know, yeah, pretty pretty impoverished. We grew up in a recession and, um, you know, times were very, very tough and as I said, no one had high expectations for me. In fact, I was told by my teachers that I would be dead, in jail or um, with five kids on welfare uh, for my life if I didn't, if I wasn't dead, a drug addict in jail, etc. Mm-hmm. So that was my kind of, um, yeah, my, my, my high school time, which was, was a very important time. But I did have a few shining lights, like a couple of teachers, art teachers, who um, honed in on 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 the fact that I enjoyed making art. When we did art, I really was quiet. I wasn't disruptive. Mm. So you know, a few seeds were planted there. Um, and without art, I they, those expectations might have been my trajectory in life. Mm. And I know that um, it certainly has for a lot of my family, even my siblings. Mm. Um, So I I really believe in the power of art to um, change our lives, Mm. to empower ourselves, to be creative, to make ourselves vulnerable, to learn about the world, history, culture, Mm. Um, this is very positive things that that art can do for you, you know. Um, yeah, you know, and painting and the discipline of it, being disciplined, um, got me into university, and that just changed changed my life. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's one thing that I want this show to be able to achieve is to be able to share with an audience how important of a role art actually plays and how directly it can actually save people's lives. I think for a lot of people, we perceive it as a hobby or something that's not a sustained career. Mm. But as an artist to artist, like it has saved lives, it continues to save lives Mm. and it continues to be a whistleblower on issues that are affecting our mob. So 100%. I want to just quickly touch on before we leave your work um, is very site specific and psychogeographies. Talk to us about that term. <laughs> That's not a term that I've like heard before. Well, it's a it's a nerdy Western um, 
you know, art word, I guess, um, and that's what university does. Mm-hmm. It gives you um, access to language um, and can and and give you a whole new um, vernacular mm-hmm. and language. So psychogeography was invented by the Marxist theorist Guy Debord in 1955 and um, he invented it to explore, um, you know, the concept of place and people in the urban environment. So it was inspired by the French 19th century poet um, Charles Baudelaire's concept of flaneur, the urban wanderer. Now, these kinds of concepts are so European, white male boring, Mm. but... um, you know, when I think of what psychogeography is, like they were talking about it, reimagining it through, it focuses on how our thoughts and feelings inform our sense of place. Mm-hmm. And while psychogeography is a very Western form and it then has those kinds of European framings, I think that when we're here in this country, um, we often overlook how much this place informs us of who we are and our people are mm. all about relationality. Mm. So our um, our thoughts and feelings could be made up but if you get raised in a community, you get given a framework and a way of understanding and seeing the world and relating to it so then that is what kind of assists us in being able to see through a city, for instance. Yeah. And blackfellas are always doing that. Like, yeah. yes, we're here walking through on a concrete path, but we also see right through that, Yeah, you know, and connect to time. So that is a psychogeography, is yeah. that kind of ability to look through things. Yeah. And so how does that manifest in your work? Is it through the idea of metaphor? Is it, I can't remember specifically the title of the work, but it was at IMA and it was a big uh, mound of pippy shells. Oyster. Oyster yeah, shells. Yeah, Oyster yeah, shells. yeah, yeah. So is that kind of tying into that idea or is that a departure from that thinking? No, I think so. I mean, it's an attempt to do it. I guess art critics can decide whether it's successful or not. But Who needs but, art critics? <laughs> we do. <laughs> but, you know, it's in that sense it's like a, a remembering and imagining um, the middens and seeing them as architecture, Aboriginal architecture, mm. not as rubbish dumps, um, you know, as the term midden actually is an English word for rubbish yeah. dump. Um, so looking at it as Aboriginal architecture and sites of family um, and, you know, centuries of getting together and eating in the one place mm. and making a place yeah. um, for that purpose. Um, but the middens also, you know, then talk about the extraction of those sites and wh- and why they are no longer in the landscape to the scale that they were and a whole lot of other, um, you know, events yeah. that comes from there. So, yeah, it's about imagining things that no longer exist but kind of also to aspire to seeing them there again. Mm. Um, yeah. 
I think that's so interesting and we do need to wrap up shortly, but I think it's like that idea of imagining and it is, like you said, a very Western, I guess, word. But when you're talking, I'm kind of thinking we imagine things, but also it's just the embodiment of our spirit and our culture. And Mm. in some ways it is our ancestors that are kind of taking us on that journey and what we're feeling is potentially a message or that next link in. Totally, yeah. Yeah. Um, last question before we do let you go, because I'm sure you are a very busy woman, but I want to just touch on like, do you think there is a responsibility for artists to kind of create work that actively sustains and heals country? Yeah. I think this is something that if we're serious about our online activism and our values that we advertise, cyberspace is one space, but what about country? Mm. You know, and I'm not really up to date with all of the progression that's occurred. I know that there are some dialogues about sovereignty and cyber cyberspace, but I kind of feel like this movement, I'm, you know, I'm of a generation that perhaps can't feel secure in that space because so much of my experience in life is kind of connected to something, I guess, a bit more firmly rooted in actual country. So, mm-hmm. I mean, after making work for the last 16 years and then growing kind of wary of my work that kind of trades in a marketplace and then art works that become objects in a museum, whilst they kind of, they do actually have, um, of course they have power and um, they can inspire people, but as an artist, you know, I'm kind of also wary that uh, am I just feeding a white fantasy here, like trading in this marketplace? What is my work actually doing for my community and country and what are my cultural obligations um, as a Kwanamooka woman to these things that I say my work is about? So it's really, um, you know, the most recent work, Kinyangara Guanyamba, meaning like place of oyster rocks, was this sculptural installation where I wanted to move away from representing dead objects in a museum space and create a living sculpture for country just to kind of, A, like spend more time with community on country, bring resources that are available and accessible through arts, art institutions that my community don't have access to and then three actually make something living because that's what our ancestors did that's what it was all about Mm. so so just trying to like create something that maybe carves a space or starts that conversation for us to 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 push back on because you know, money isn't everything and we know that. Now our old people knew that too. So the marketplace, whilst it gives us a sense of freedom and justice and visibility, I think it can also be a trap. So we just got to be mm. in charge of that and yarn about that mm. and, 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 and make the rules, make yeah. our own rules, yeah. Yeah. I think that's so powerful and even like how you were 
I feel like we got a little insight into what happens inside your brain with all of those questions popping up, which as a fellow artist, it's really reassuring to hear that someone so successful like you also has those questions. But I definitely view your work as artifacts. They are modern artifacts that will contribute to this time and place, but also for future mob and generations. So we do have to wrap it up. I feel like I could talk to you for... (laughs) A whole other three hours. We might have to get you back. But, Megan, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thanks, Rachel. It's great. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Thank you, everyone, for another week of Let's Talk the Arts. We'll see you next Monday for another guest. No more whispering in our mind. Let's Talk, Monday to Friday at 9am on AAA Murray Country, the National Indigenous Radio Service and iHeartRadio. You can catch up on AAA.org.au, proudly supported by the Community Broadcast Foundation.